good. There you go. 39,996 times more and I'm up with Wesley. (laughs) Right. Um, We're in the Life to the Full series and uh, today's offering, we're going to look at the world of work. Um, What does the Bible say about work? To start us off, um, I really like the way that Phil and Sally Hillsden started off um, a couple of weeks ago when they were here. They found a few quotes about age. So this is my internet offering on work. The first one's a a well-known one. You might might recognise this. I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. (laughs) And uh, here's a notice that was on a, uh, well, someone's workplace. Due to the current workload, the light at the end of the tunnel will be turned off until further notice. (laughs) Why is Monday so far from Friday and Friday so close to Monday? And don't forget, the first five days after the weekend are always the hardest. And this is my personal favourite. Sometimes the best part of my job is that my chair swivels. Because I've definitely had days like that. Right. Now, <clears throat> you people know that Christianity is, is not just what we do here on a Sunday morning. It affects the whole of our lives. Every moment, every season of life, every action, every relationship, every decision. Uh, that's why this series is called Life to the Full. Um, we're looking at so many aspects of our Christian faith. Now, you may still be surprised to know um, the prominent place that work has in the Gospels and in the early church. Now, here's three statistics uh, from the, the Gospels and the Book of Acts. Out of 132 public episodes in the Gospels, 122 were in the marketplace. Now, the marketplace is kind of where the work goes on. It's where people trade, it's where people sell, that they've got stuff to do. It's probably where people worked as well at their jobs. Ever such a lot of the miracles and praying and activity in the Gospels goes on in the marketplace. Secondly, out of 52 parables that Jesus told, 45 had a workplace context... And in the book of Acts, out of 40 miracles, 39 were in the marketplace. It kind of says that what goes on in the world of work is ever so important to the forwarding of the gospel, doesn't it? It's not that, I mean, it's great that the healings may happen here on a Sunday morning, but actually, in the book of Acts and the gospels, uh, it's, it's happening out there. Now, when I looked at my quotes, um, on the internet, I did find that ever such a lot of what, the, um, of what the internet said about work was really quite negative. Here's one, said, if you think your boss is stupid, don't, re- don't forget, if he's any smarter, you wouldn't have a job. So, now, that's actually quite negative on both counts, isn't it? So, and, and it's often very easy to be influenced by um, those around us and what the, you know, what the internet says, what our friends said. But today, um, as we always do here, we're going to take a look at what the Bible says about work. Now, there are three points this morning. The first one is why work is good. 
The second one, why work is hard. And the third one, how and why we make a difference. The first two points are mine and then we're saving the best till last and Mim's going to come up and uh, say how and why we make a difference. Right. In looking at the first point, why work is good, I'm going to do it in three chunks, not chronological. We're going to start off with Genesis and see what God intended for, for work right there. Then we're going to go to the end of the Bible in heaven. There's work in heaven. Yes, there is. And then the bit in between where you and me are. But in every case, you're going to see that God ordained work and God uh, has made it good. So, um, let's start off. Have you ever considered what it was like in the Garden of Eden? What did Adam and Eve do all day? Now, Again, I googled this one to see what the artists made of the Garden of Eden and 95% of pictures contain two new people, a snake and an apple. However, the other 5% were um, generally like the one there. Can you see that? They're kind of, it's a bit utopian. They're just sitting on the riverbank, quite laid back. There's a lion and a lamb on the other side. It really looks pretty easy life right? but actually if you read Genesis chapter 2 a little bit more carefully you see that it wasn't just like that I'm sure it was sometimes but there was work involved look at this, Genesis 2 verse 5 when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. Oh, that's what he's going to do. He's going to work the ground. A few verses later, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Ladies and gents, you and me were made for work. We were. That's what, that's what, that's what uh, God expected Adam to do. Right from the outset, God intended man to work. And what work did Adam do? Well, if he was working the land, that's sort of like um, say it's farming, isn't it? It's some sort of farming. He was growing things. It's not ever so clear. Although, there was one job, one specific task that God gave him. In verse 19, now, out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now, God had worked for six days. He had created the stars, the planets, the oceans, the land, the plants, the animals and man. His creativity had made the universe. Yet God now wants to include man in his creative enterprise. Look at the job God gives to Adam. Name the animals. Now, God could have said, look, the one with the tall neck over there, that's a giraffe. Fat one, hippopotamus. Okay. God could have done that. He's not run out of creativity. But there's something in God that because we're made in his spirit, God wants us to be involved in that creative um, energy, that creative ability. So he says, go on Adam, this is your part. You name the animals. Now, 
Um, Michael Eaton wrote a commentary on Genesis and he talks about Adam's work and what he does. He says, it was happy work, it was easy work and would have given him great satisfaction. And that's probably what you think every Monday morning. Ah, well, we'll come to that later, okay? So, the purpose of work originally in Genesis. Now, let's go to the other end of the uh, timeline. What about heaven? Um, I've got a little um, quote from Isaiah 60, and it sounds a bit like one of those times when Israel's coming back from exile, but it's not. If you look carefully, this is clearly one of those end times um, passages where it's talking about something that will happen, not something that has happened. There's probably a, a proper theological name for that, but I'm not clever enough to know what it's called. So, your son shall you got that? Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. You shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover, shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. Now, Isaiah 60 appears to be about returning exiles, but there's more to it than that. It goes on to say... The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. Hey, this is a different context. This is a different place. This is what heaven's going to be like. Now, what does that um, passage say about work? Have you noticed? Um, the ships of Tarshish whoops, bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. How do you get silver and gold? You've got to go and dig it up. You've got to work it. This is the fruit of their labours they're bringing to God. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to, do, gathered to you. Flocks are the results of the work of shepherds. You see, this shows that work will be there in heaven as it was in the first paradise. So it's there before the fall, it's there in heaven. What about now? Let's have a look at our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. Let's have a look at his life and see how work fitted into what he did. Jesus lived on earth for 33 years. He had a public ministry for three years. What did he do for the 17 years before that, after he came of age? Worked as a carpenter. When he first began to teach in the synagogue, the people of his hometown didn't say, oh, here comes the preacher, here comes the miracle worker. They said, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Who's the carpenter? That was what Jesus did for 17 years before he started preaching. The king of heaven comes to work on earth and that gives to work a dignity and it places a high value 
on work. Now, not all um, religions have the same view of work. Okay, you look at some of the uh, <laughs> some of the other sort of creation stories. And, uh, do you know the one about Pandora's box? Okay, the gods give a box to Pandora, and they say, "Don't open the box," and then. She opens the box and all the bad things in the world come out, including work. Right? Here's another one. It's called the Enuma Elish. It's a Mesopotamian creation story. The gods create the earth. Think, done it now. And they think, God, this is taking a lot of effort to keep this earth going. God, this is hard work. We're going to have to think of plan B. I know. We're going to create man. Man can do all the work of just looking after the earth and, and we'll just sit up here and be gods. You see, work was considered a very low thing and that is not the way Christianity looks at it. Work is an important and noble thing. And the work that you do is important as well. Martin Luther, um, from, uh, well... Martin Luther, Germany, 15-something or other, um, explains it like this, does it very well. It says, God feeds every living thing. Well, how does he do that? How, how does God feed every living thing? If, if the Bible says God feeds every living thing, how does he do that? Well, the farmer grows it, and the drover brings it to market. And the simple farm girl who's milking the cow, she is one of the fingers of God. You are being cared for by the work that other people do. In your work, whatever it is, you are a finger of God, caring for other people. You may say, how's my work God's work? Well, it is. Um, I read, a, in preparation for this, I read part of a, a book by a guy called uh, Kevin Costa. Now, he's been an international banker. He's written a book on how um, you know, Christians in the workplace and how the work is, um, how it's you know, God's purpose, if you like, for us to work. And he explains how what we are doing is really um, the work of God. Now, I'll just read a quote from this. It's quite a long one, but uh, I, th I think it's helpful. Most of us will find our callings in the secular workplace and we'll need to find out how to be fulfilled there. In practice, it's easier to see that, in some, that this in some jobs, such as nursing or social work, than in others. So, how does working as a banker in a large organisation advance the kingdom of God? An executive who had worked in a bank for five years told me, I feel so confused. I work in a big global institution, but I'm such a small and insignificant part of it that I can make no difference. What am I trying to achieve with my life? Now, I try to help her understand the bigger picture. This is an essential requirement if we are to find the purpose behind the work that we do. The free flow of capital, the provisions of funds and the new businesses and the creation of jobs are all important to society. All of us need to understand the wider context of the jobs we do. 
the supermarket manager delivers a crucial service by providing good food at affordable prices. Effective management and customer service impacts the community by making shopping a positive experience. <laughs> For some of us. On the micro level, as we learn to see what God is doing in our workplace, we can put our energies into those areas. For example, whether, whether we describe a product accurately or not is a spiritual decision. Somebody asks a shop assistant, will the colour in this jumper run if I put it in the washing machine? When we declare the truth in small measures, the kingdom of God is advanced. This can be true when we draft documents, sell products or mark exams. Indeed, in any activity we do in our working day, we need to remind ourselves continuously that God is interested in building up his original plan of community. We often miss out on this crucial reason for work by narrowing the discussion on the purpose of work to an individualistic debate about self-fulfilment. Instead, this debate should be held in the context of the needs of the wider human community which God created, loves and which needs to be served by, for example, banks, supermarkets and information technology. This work is the way that God is caring for you. All work is God's work. And this has incredible implications for the way that we view work. Just going to draw out three of these implications. Number one, work is good in and of itself. No one kind of work is superior to another. There's no room for snobbery about the type of job that we may or may not do. Doesn't matter if our job is manual, office, managerial, blue collar, white collar, paid, voluntary, secular, or spiritual. Work is good and ordained by God. Now, the second thing is this if God cares for his creation through simple work, do your job well. Make sure you do a good job. To illustrate those first two points, I've got a quote from Martin Luther King, 1960s America. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted, or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that the host of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper, who did his job well. Third point, or implication from uh, what the Bible says about work, is this. Make decisions about your work based on God's guidance. Um, sometimes we can be under pressure to take a particular type of job, maybe by a family, by friends, um, when I was 17, um, my father was an insurance broker at Lloyd's in London and uh, I was kind of heading that way. I was going to be an insurance underwriter at Lloyd's in London. I'd got an interview and I got contacts in there and I was going to do that. And a very godly um, Christian teacher that was teaching me A-level at the time said, Neville, you're, 
sort of guy that you're much more a people person. If you thought about um, maybe you know doing some social work or teaching or that sort of thing, and you know what, that was the way God um, spoke to me just through that that Christian teacher that uh, I ended up ended up teaching, and uh, I believe that was God's guidance because what was more important was. Um, finding something that was appropriate for my gifts or talents. Now, we can get pressured, but sometimes by family, there's, there's two ways that I think the pressure sometimes works. Go for that job. That's more prestigious. That's higher paid. That's the one you want to go for. If your talents are there, and that's, that's what you feel God's calling to, that's great. Sometimes it isn't. We need to stand against that. The other one, it can be almost the opposite. Play it safe. That's a safe job. But inside, there's an entrepreneurial spirit. There's a, a no, I want to I be able to take risks. And, and if that's what God's called to you, bless you. That we need to, to seek wisdom in choosing the type of job that we do. No? I know this is sometimes difficult because in, in the economy that we're in in this country, there's not always uh, that great availability of jobs. There is unemployment in this country. It didn't happen, I, I think, so much in biblical times because uh, in Israel they divided up the land, everybody had a bit of land, everybody had a chance to work. And so I think one thing we need to pray for in this country is for greater employment so that there is that opportunity that everybody has uh, to be able to, to go into a, a form of work. Right, that's work is good, but I probably don't need to say so much on this. Work is hard. Work just is. Now, I've got two reasons why work is hard. One's a very simple biblical reason, and the second one is more to do with your motivation. Work is hard because of thistles and thorns. Thistles and thorns is what does it. Genesis 3, 17. After the fall, when Adam and Eve are not in Eden anymore, that whole work dynamic changes. It used to be uh, creative, good, fun, but then God says this, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Works just hard. Tis. That's not the sort of work that was being done in the Garden of Eden. It's a bit different now. Now, if you're a farmer, probably, I don't know, if you're a farmer, you know about thorns and thistles. They get in the way. They stop what's supposed to happen happening. If you're not a farmer, then you've got plenty of thorns and thistles. It's that delivery that doesn't turn up on time. It's that computer that breaks down at the wrong moment. It's that pupil that will not behave. Somehow just recognising it is, is a start to dealing with it, isn't it? It just is. It's, there's thorns and thistles in your work. I know that. 
The second reason why work is hard, and this is um, perhaps the more important one, is to do with motivation. Right. The clue is in Genesis chapter 11. Who knows what happens in Genesis chapter 11? It is, you're right, the Tower of Babel. There it is. It's, I like all the pictures of the Tower of Babel on Google. It's, it's like a mixture between the Leaning Tower of Pisa and Mordor. Um, but, okay, that's the, that's the Tower of Babel. Now, why did they build it? Okay, it says, I don't think, it says, um, where are we? This is what they said to themselves. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in heaven and let us make a name for ourselves. It's about us. Let's make a name for ourselves. And do you know what? When we start doing that, that's when we get into problems. And it's something that it's too easy to do with our work, particularly us guys, I'm afraid. It's my work where my identity is. It's the job I do. Hi, Bob, how are you doing? Hey, what do you do, Bob? Talk about it quite a lot. Sometimes it's what we do and we invest our identity in our job. It becomes an all-encompassing pursuit where our identity is found. Now, that is always going to end badly. It's going to go one of two ways. One possibility is you're really good at your job. Hey, look at me. I'm puffed up. It goes to my head. Here's the other problem. My work goes really bad. And that just hurts your heart. It's not, if, if that happens, if our identity is found in our work and we give undue importance to our work, it's going to end in hurt. So if you've been caught up in a lifestyle where work is out of proportion, here are two keys to gain perspective. Remember that your true identity is in God. Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. Your most, that's where your identity is. That's the most important way to, to shrug off the shackles of, of thinking that my identity is in my work. And here's the last point, the second point. Your motivation in your work needs to be aligned with God's purpose in giving work to you. Now, I'm going to tell you a story of a Jack's, so Jack's, jazz saxophonist. His name was John Coltrane, and I don't know much about him, but I've just researched a little bit, and I found this, this quote from him. Now, he's a, supposedly, I'm not a jazz aficionado in any way, but supposedly one of the great um, saxophonists. And in 
1957, he wrote this down with, with a, um, I think they're interlinear notes for the, the music that he's writing. He wrote this. In 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music, to inspire them for living meaningful lives because there certainly is meaning to life, all praise to God. Now, what's he saying there? I mean, he's always had his music for the people, has he? Well, he may have thought that to himself, but actually, now he's saying, it's all about God and other people. This, my music, is for people. My music is for God. It's not, I'm not doing it for the praise I get on stage or the money I'm paid. I'm doing it for other people. He began to serve others through his music. Now, if everybody in the world was working at their job like that, what a radically different world we'd be in. And that's, I think, the challenge to us as Christians. Now, the third point is how and why we make a difference. And Mim is going to do that one. Thanks, Mim. I always marvel at God's timing. Raj asked me to do this talk or to help with it at a time when my morale and motivation at work was really low. It's a really challenging time in the NHS at the moment and it's not always enjoyable. But preparing this has reminded me why I'm there and how I can serve God there. So I hope you get something from this too, but I've already regained a real sense of purpose at work through looking at this. Nev has already looked at the biblical reasons for work and why it's a positive thing. The biblical concept of work includes many things other than paid employment, but we know that one is not better than the other but most of what I'm briefly going to talk about focuses on workplaces that are outside the home, be them paid or voluntary. Firstly, I just wanted to debunk a few myths that some people in churches might feel about work. The roots, the reasons why we work, must be right, as Nev has alluded to. We do not work to fund the church or to provide God with resources. He is Jehovah Jireh, the provider Everything is his, and he doesn't rely on our offerings. We do not work in order to be in a position to move into our true ministry or our calling in the church. Our ministry and calling are probably outside of the church where we spend a large proportion of our time with those who don't currently know or love Jesus. And we do not work to train us for leadership in the church. If these are our motivations for working, then we will not be good employees our employers will not see us as reliable or invested in the workplace. Of course, all of these things might come out of work, and they're all good things, giving money and time to church, learning new skills which we can serve the church with, but they shouldn't be the reason that we go to work. Another myth, again, that Neville mentioned slightly, and I think probably more of us believe it than we would like to admit, is that spiritual gifts are not for the workplace, they're for church. And I want to challenge that. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, tells us, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, 
but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. We should be practicing and developing our gifts at church, and if we're not, then we won't be able to use them in the workplace. God is with us all the time, including at work. If you have the gift of prophecy, you may be able to clearly hear God for direction or strategy, as it might be called, at work. So, in a meeting where direction is needed, you can pray and feed into that strategy. Prophecy is used for building people up, so you can be an encourager and help people identify their own skills in the workplace. If you have the gift of, of teaching, then becoming a teacher is an obvious choice, or being able to help provide training in different settings, or helping come alongside a colleague who might be struggling with a new skill or a new idea. If you have the gift of being pastoral, then you can listen to colleagues who are having a hard time. They will learn to trust you and might even let you pray with them over time. If you have the gift of leadership, you can help steer and support others. You might lead in business or go into government and lead on a wider scale. Our gifts are given to point people to God in everyday life, just as we see in Acts 3. I am really privileged because I know very, very clearly that God has called me to the ward that I work on. So this means that when I've had some really tough times, God has supported me and encouraged me, even when I've wanted to leave. I know that not everyone has this clarity about their work situations, but God will still use you where you are. I know that God has put me there to effect change, and I do see change happening. It's slow, and it's not what I thought it would be, but I have to keep trusting in God. One of the things that I've tried to ch help change is the culture of negativity. At different times, consultants and colleagues have commented on my positivity, and this is God working through me in my workplace. It's certainly not something that I can do naturally or by myself, and it doesn't always feel positive. I've been told off at various times by senior management for poor time management, because I choose to spend time talking to my patients or talking to relatives instead of doing paperwork. Just because I know that God has put me there doesn't make it easy and doesn't make it perfect. But one of, and one of the big challenges for me in following God at work is not participating in gossip. Even when I feel that what other people are saying might be correct or might be justified, it does not honor my colleagues or God, and he regularly has to whisper in my ear about it. 1 Thessalonians 4 reminds us, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Now, I asked a few people, not within Jubilee, for, who work in various different roles, for some practical examples of things that we can do at work to make a difference and to love people. They're not all my ideas, so please don't go away thinking that I'm some sort of super-Christian at work. But here's just a few. Pray on your way to work. Or have your special time with God at work before others arrive and be praying th throughout the day for your colleagues. Be honest, have integrity in all your actions. Send an encouraging card to a manager or someone in a senior position to you. Bake cakes or treats for colleagues just because you want to show them love. Make a cup of tea for someone who's too busy to make their own. Wash up for colleagues, clean the fridge or the microwave or whatever it is that you've got a work that nobody else wants to clean. Be welcoming to new staff or any students. Invite people to events like Alpha and Why Christmas. Be available and answer any questions that anyone asks about God, 
Pray with those that ask and share scriptures with people that might be open. Give pre-loved toys or books to people for children or grandchildren. Take a real genuine interest in people's lives. Avoid rude or inappropriate conversations and be careful and aware of the language that we use, not taking God's name in vain or disrespecting him. If you have any Christian colleagues, see if you can meet up and pray together. Have lots and lots of grace when people make mistakes. Remember that God has always got grace for you and you can always pass that grace on to others. And again, what, as Neville said, do your best work every day, not the bare minimum. Colossians 3.23 tells us, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. As Gavin Haley so wonderfully reminded us a few weeks ago, Colossians 3.1-3 instructs us to set our hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. They gave us a brilliant application of this to dating, but this scripture is applicable to every one of the areas of life that we've looked at in this Life to the Full series. And yes, that includes work. Our eyes fixed on God brings change and can change our hearts for our workplaces and our colleagues. I know that not everyone likes their colleagues or enjoys their workplace or feels any sense of calling to be there, but look up, look to God. Set your heart and mind on him and don't aim to do any of it in your own strength. Ask God to change you, your heart, your expectations and rely on him daily for more of his spirit. If we do this, it will draw us closer to God and in doing so, shine him into our workplaces. And I'm going to finish by quoting Holly Grob. You might not be able to change the world, but you can change one person's world. And I would like to add that you maybe can change a whole workplace if the band can come up, we're going to set our hearts on God and we're going to worship him. So I'm just going to pray as they come up. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I just thank you for work. I thank you that you've made each of us as individuals with different skills and different gifts. Father, help us to look to you and focus our hearts on you so that we can take you into our workplaces and demonstrate your love to those around us. Lord, we want to serve and honor you in everything that we do. Father God, we just set our hearts on you now, Lord. We love you and we want to praise you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord God.